in applicant tracking system, there are two views that I as a recruiter can go into. I can go into the job view where I look at a specific job and then I look at all the applicants on that job. Or I go into the candidate view where I can look at a specific candidate and I can look at all of the jobs they've applied for. Hey, thanks for joining us for another episode of Hiring Behind the Scenes. This is where we talk to hiring practitioners, be it recruiters or hiring managers, and get the behind the scenes view at what goes on the hiring process. This week, we're with Kristen Fife, who brings a wealth of recruiting knowledge from setting up ATS systems to recruiting at small startups to large Fortune 100 companies. Kristen goes deep into OFCCP, which is the regulations and requirements for posting jobs, especially if you work with government contracts, setting up ATSs, what they look for. She's used so many of them. I think she says about 20. She's set them up. She's used them to hire. So it is so full of insightful information. I highly recommend you listen till the very end. And I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I enjoyed recording it. Hey, everyone. Thanks for joining. We are with Kristen Fife this week, and I am incredibly excited to have this conversation. Kristen someone I followed on LinkedIn for a very long time, and she is always an incredible defender of the job seeker. But not only does she just give folklore advice, it's like backed with data and research and years of experience, and it's so, so, so good. Kristen, would love to hear a little bit more about you from you. Sure. I'm in the Seattle area. I have been in tech recruiting for over two decades. So I've been working at um, companies of all sizes. I've done 10 person startup. I've been part of high growth of when I, I was employee like number 35 and I hired 60 people when I was at a startup. I've worked at mid-sized companies. I've worked at enterprise companies like HP, Microsoft. I've worked at Twitter. I was a casualty of the buyout last year. So I've really worked in every size company and I actually have been the sole recruiter at companies mid-size 1,500 to 3,000 people and and on down to smaller companies. So I pretty much like to say I've seen most everything. I'm never going to say everything because that would be, you know, you're never going to see everything, but I've seen a lot. I've got a lot of breadth, a lot of depth. I've worked with a lot of HR professionals. I've hired just about every corporate position you can imagine. I've hired just about every tech title there is out there. So I really like to bring that expertise to help the job seekers understand what's happening on the other side of the desk. This is awesome. Oh boy, I hope I can keep this to an hour. <laughs> Maybe we'll have to do two parts. So you gave me a few topics in when, when we sort of talked about this, but you know, and some we've covered before, but one we haven't, and you, you've written about this a bit on LinkedIn, so I'm excited to dive into it. And I always get the acronym wrong, which is OFCCP. And I think, you know, this is one of these things I see like you and Amy, Amy Miller, for anyone who's not familiar with her by first name, Amy. <laughs> and, uh, you know, a lot of talk about like, oh, you just need to be this percentage qualified. But these things get quite kind of complicated around JDs and legalities. And, you know, some things are truly legal, not just like, oh, that's illegal, like lawyer speak. No, 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 this is truly illegal. So I would love to unpack that a little bit and understand that and, and give people a, a kind of the behind the scenes of what companies and then kind of what companies at what scale sure. need to deal with these things. So OFCCP is part of the EEOC in the US. What's the EEOC? Equal Employment Opportunity Commission awesome. and Affirmative Action. These are these are the folks that make sure that hiring practices in the United States are as fair and unbiased as possible for everyone, not just 
minorities, not just whites for everyone. They basically, they uphold all of the affirmative action laws, all of the legal ramifications of fair hiring. So OFCCP itself stands for the Office of Federal Contract Compliance Program. So this is any um, organization that has over 50 employees, 50 or more employees, and has uh, a contract of some sort with the federal government of $50,000 or more or their subcontractors. And that's really one of the keys. So mm. um, there's a whole website and it's really, it takes training to even for someone in recruiting to get through it. But what it boils down to is OFCCP means that anyone, any organization that is compliant, that is required to be compliant with these set of protocols can only hire people that meet their minimum qualifications as they are stated. They have to consider all qualified applicants. That means they need to read all of all of the applications that come in, but that also means they only consider qualified applicants that meet those minimum qualifications. So when you hear a recruiter talk about BQs, that means literally basic qualifications or PQs, preferred qualifications, that's a good indicator that they are part of an OFCCP compliant organization. Um, this also impacts all federal jobs. It's basically, it's if you're doing business with the federal government, you have to be OFCCP compliant. And the same set of rules also are applicable for Canadian federal jobs, not the contractors. But if you're applying for a job with the federal government in Canada, you also need to be 100% meet the basic qualifications as stated. So that, what you said there at the end is as stated, as right? Stated. You know, I, I learned a lot about SOX compliance yeah. when I was at WeWork yeah. and we were like finally to go public. And we, you know, my big, I was like, okay, so where's, where's the rules? Like, no, no, you write the rules. Yeah. You just have to follow the rules that you write. Right. I was like, wait, what? Yeah. They're like, yeah, yeah, you write the rules. Yep. Then you test yourself against your own rules that you wrote. Yep. So, and it's kind of a similar thing with this, right? It's if in the JDs that you create, what you state as basic, people then need to basic requirement. Anyone that you move forward has to be 100% Correct. qualified in basic requirements, Correct. right? Now, and the other stipulation is those qualifications need to be quantifiable. They need to be something ah. that you can quantify. So, for example, so many years of experience or so much education. So it has to be a hard quantifiable. You have to have worked in these specific types of roles or industries. It has to be something that you can quantify. So it can't just be kind of a broad, we're looking for someone with great communication skills, blah, blah, blah. You have to say, we're looking for someone who has two years of experience writing communication for such an audience, or we're looking for someone who's bilingual in English and Spanish, or there has to be quantification. It can't be just a broad overview and it's functional hard skills. It's not soft skills. So those are the really important things to understand. But within that context, if you don't meet 100% of those basic qualifications, the employer legally cannot consider you, period, end of sentence. So that area of a JD for a company that's OFCP compliant, the basic, and so it might be called minimum qualifications, basic, basic qualifications, qualifications, requirements, right? Those are kind of like yeah. the two, minimum requirements. Most of the companies that are OFCCP compliant that I have seen actually use BQ, basic qualifications, because that's what the federal government uses. But it's a requirements section that says, you know, must have required, will bring to the table, minimum requirements. The, the key word there is requirement or must have. That's the bottom line. Okay. So again, just to say it again for anyone listening, it's super clear. Like if there's a requirement section and the company is OFCCP, which I guess Maybe we can talk about how to try yeah. to discern yeah. that. You have to meet 100% of that section, Correct. not the whole JD, Correct. that section. Correct. You got to be 100%. It is black and white. Correct. It is 
they're binary. Yeah. There is no interpretation, no, no. There's, yeah, is, there's no wiggle room. It's you are or you aren't, period, end of sentence. So it makes it both easier and more difficult. But the the caveat to that is these employers need to consider all qualified applicants. So they need to read, someone needs to read through all of the resumes that are submitted from direct applicants. There's also a section of CCP as it relates to hiring that says it defines an applicant. An applicant, you have to express an interest in a specific position. So Mm -hmm. if a sourcer finds you or you're in a talent community, you still, to be considered for an OFCCP compliant organization, you still need to apply to that specific job. That is part of the whole process. So I think those are the things that are most important to understand. So you're not considered an applicant until you actually fill out the online application or however their application process is. And most OFCCP compliant organizations have moved to an applicant tracking system online for ease of keeping track of everything. But I I just want to, you know, you have to express an, an interest in that particular position, even if you're a referral, even if you've been submitted by an agency, even if you've been sourced by an internal sourcing recruiter at that organization or another organization. So as a candidate, how can you tell if the company is? So it's going to be any organization that receives federal money. So think about this. For large organizations, it's going to be do they have government contracts? So think about this of the big fang companies, Microsoft, Apple, Google, Amazon are all OCCP combined. They all have contracts because generally because of they're either providing hardware or software services to the government. Then let's look at things like every public educational organization in the United States, every school, whether it's a kindergarten, whether it's a middle school, grammar school, high school, university, if they get any money, such as Pell Grants, from the United States government, they're OCCP compliant. And then all of their service providers, like vendors, like you know, cleaning staff, or say they outsource their, they have residence halls and they have dining rooms and anyone that's in the dining room. So anyone that is either employed by that particular organization or their subcontractors. So any organization that provides services or goods to any of the armed services, any private industry, if you think of like maritime, so a big maritime partner with the U.S. government with either the Navy or the Coast Guard is called MERSC. They're an international shipping organization. They're OCCP compliant and then all of their subcontractors. And for smaller organizations, it's what do they provide and do they provide to the federal government? So it's all medical systems, all hospitals, all medical systems, all schools, anyone associated with the military. And so it's really, really understanding what service they fill. If it's a direct B2C and there's no B2B, it's probably not going to be relevant. You know, So for example, my last couple of employers, they didn't have any government contracts, so they weren't OCCP compliant. So they- So Twitter yeah, was Twitter not. Was not no. Now, Twitter hosted government profiles, but they didn't have contracts. They weren't getting actual actual money from the government. They were, it's specifically related to government contracts. And I would say for large organizations, do they have a, a governmental relation? So, you know, almost all organizations like Microsoft has, they have legal and, and corporate affairs, which covers also all of the, you know, the governmental contracts and government outreach. Do they provide something that might be used for the federal government? And the nice thing about the government is there's lists that you can find of who government contractors are because of transparency. You probably look it up. You can look it up on the government side of things. 
So part of what that translates to is, I, I would imagine, was like the the creation of this preferred qualifications, which now you start to get into like the fuzzy zone because if they put it in the BQ, you have to like one hundred percent no no yeah no leeway. Then comes the preferred. Right. Like, are there specs and criteria around preferred? Yeah. So the preferred qualifications are generally going to be things like industry experience. So, you know, let's just take Amazon as an example. It'd be great if you're going to be applying to Audible. It'd be great if you have prior experience working like with some sort of media, online media, or maybe if you're a software engineer, it'd be really great if you worked on a similar technology or certifications. Like if you're a program manager, a project manager, having a PMP, so certifications, all of these can go under preferred qualifications. Yeah, because I've heard the exchange like between, like from a recruiter to a product a hiring manager where they're like, Hey, don't, you know, the hiring manager's like, I really need this. And the recruiter might be like, Hey, you might want to put that in the preferred yep. and not the required, because if you put that in required, like yeah. we've, we've lost all leeway. Yeah. Like now if the person doesn't have a PMP, we can't move them forward in the process. Any experienced recruiter who has worked with OCCP is going to try and talk their hiring manager to the lowest common denominator. Because if you say you need four years of experience doing this, you're not going to see anyone who has three years and six months or three years and nine months or three years and 11 months. They're going to have to have a full four years of experience if you tell me that that's what you're looking for. And that's a legal requirement. Now, can they rewrite the job description? Yes. But then they have to repost it and then they have to reconsider all of the candidates. And that's a lot more pain than it's worth for growing organizations, especially for the very large organizations. And you can still build out a talent community or you can still build out what's called an evergreen requisition, which is for high volume positions. So for example, at a hospital, it might be, you know, food server, or it could be a patient financial representative. These are high turnover roles that you are filling every few months, or there's a lot of them. You can do that as long as the basic qualification is listed. You know, you have to have a year of customer service. You have to have a year working in some sort of a billing capacity or a, or a financial capacity, but you can keep them broad. The requirements can be broad, but the broader the requirements, the more people that your recruiters are going to have to go through. What are the consequences for non-compliance? Lots of fines if you're audited, <laughs> like tens of thousands. If you're of audited. Yeah. So it's kind of like one of those things where as a company, they could try to deviate and they might not get caught. It's kind of like your taxes. Right. What, you know, what you, you know, If you get audited, then you could be in trouble. Yeah. And audits can be triggered by complaints. If you get enough um, lawsuits will trigger it. Uh, there was a recent lawsuit from someone about age discrimination there have been EEOC complaints that have led to audits. And then sometimes they're just general audits. They're random or you don't know why the EEOC has has actually built out these audits. You don't know the reason why, but they're pretty common. I mean, a lot of companies have gone through them and the audit is just to make sure that you're following the procedure correctly. So this, I think, leads us to one of our mutually favorite topics, <laughs> the ATS. Ah, uh, yes. The, the, app- the magical applicant tracking system, the all-powerful, intelligent, omnipotent uh, ATS. So we've got these requirements and you said they should essentially be non-interpretive, let's call it. You were calling them like empirical, but they just have to be like, like yes, no's. Correct. And the ATS, everyone thinks that the ATS does this like magical screening. No. ATSs don't check for these. I mean, so there's knockout questions, which we could talk about. That's a person answering an explicit question. But as far as I know, you've worked with way more ATSs than I have. Yeah. They can't even check for things like this on the resume. Do you meet these non-interpretive requirements? Correct. A lot of people 
So there's a Boolean search algorithm that a lot of applicant tracking systems offer that when you start getting candidates coming in, they can do a keyword match with the job description. So for example, and it's, again, these are going to be functional skills. I want to be really, really, really clear that when we're talking requirements and keyword searches, we are talking about functional hard skills. We are not talking about soft skills. We're not talking about transferable skills, except if there's something like manage people management. That That is a transferable skill. But we are in general talking about functional skills only and things like degrees. So the applicant tracking system, there's like a matching algorithm that it can scan as a resume comes in and then make a suggestion that they're, the percentage of keywords in the job description are on the resume. But here's the challenge with that. People don't write resumes the same way. There is no standardized way of writing a resume other than I worked here for here and this is what I did. But other than that, it's very, very subjective. So you could have someone who has, say, four years of experience. Let's just talk about sales. So they could have mentioned all of the keywords like cold calling, business development, account management, quota. They could have all of those words mentioned maybe two or three times each throughout their document. And then you could have someone that has 15 years of experience who's actually more qualified, but who only mentions it once or twice in their resume. And the person who mentions it more times will show up as more qualified than the person who has all of the experience just because of the way they've written their resume. So it's based on, it's stack ranks the resume based on the number of times a keyword is actually repeated, which you would think would maybe increase your chances of being seen, but I don't know any recruiter who actually uses this function because it's so wildly inaccurate. It's available. It's not every applicant tracking system. It's some of them. That is the only current piece of technology that could be said to scan a resume. And it's not scanning and it's not dispositioning your resume somewhere else. It is actually illegal to disposition someone without having someone look at it. You cannot just take a resume and or OFCCP. Legally at all. I mean, that's just, this is legally at all. So you can't just have someone apply for a job and then just automatically knock them out without having either the knockout questions, which the candidate answers, they have nothing to do with the recruiter or the the system. Those are based on questions that the candidate answers. They have nothing to do with the resume. Those are the only ways that you can actually knock someone out. So it is across, I'm going to guess that there's some sort of company threshold, but it is at the U.S. government level. If you are an employer in the U.S., it is illegal to disposition a candidate or reject a candidate out like automatically without a human having reviewed their application. Without some kind of a, a review mechanism, correct? Oh wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, that's um, that's pretty cool. Yeah, that's why recruiter jobs aren't on the line just yet, <laughs> and that's why we we are so busy, and that's why a lot of things are happening. And you know, I think the people who who are evangelizing, oh, you know, get around the ATS or get past the ATS, well you don't really get around the ATS because you have to apply for a job. And if you try and get quote unquote around the ATS, that means you'll never get an offer because almost every job offer is generated out of the applicant tracking system. So you need to go through the process for us to be able to generate your offer letter. So you don't really want to get passed through around the ATS without it actually going into process. (laughs) Yeah. And I want to talk a little bit more about what you brought up with the search and the stack ranking. Cause like, yeah, I think people really like to overblow what that is. Like, just think about any time you've ever done any search on any software. Yeah. 
LinkedIn, Google, Google right? They come in an order. Yep. That's really all we're talking about. It's like a, a lot of the ATSs do use keyword yep. frequency to just set the order, but it's still a human who goes through them. Yeah, and we set our, and so I'm talking about that percentage match I mentioned. That's a feature that can be used or not. It's an integration feature that can be turned on or not. And even if it's turned on, it doesn't change the view that the recruiter chooses for how they look at resumes. So they're basically an applicant tracking system. There are two views that I as a recruiter can go into. I can go into the job view where I look at a specific job and then I look at all the applicants on that job. Or I go into the candidate view where I can look at a specific candidate and I can look at all of the jobs they've applied for, but I still see the same information either way. And I would say probably most recruiters in general, when they're going through all the resumes, they're going to go into the job view and then they're going to look at the candidates. And I would say probably most of us, we look at who's the most recent. So we are going to look at the incoming resumes first because, you know, we chunk our time out. So, you know, if I open the job on a Wednesday, I might wait till Friday to see how many applicants have come in. I might've put the job up on some job boards, LinkedIn, take your pick. And then I'm going to go and I'm going to spend a chunk of time and I'm going to go through that. I'm going to spend probably half an hour to an hour in the next week, like two or three times looking at who's come through. And then I'm going to disposition out the candidates that are actually look like they're a match to the job. And so when I disposition them out, that means that if they're patently unqualified for the job, I'm going to decline them. I mean, and I'm one of those people I try and decline when I'm going through it. If I have an applicant tracking system that allows me to schedule a decline, like for one or two business days, I will do that because I've heard all the complaints of, I applied for a job and I was, you know, and I was rejected five minutes later. And that means that there's a machine looking at it. I'm like, no, it could be the recruiter who's actually looking at it is actually dispositioning while you're applying or you may not be thinking that you you filled out NALCA questions, which is going to give you that same five minutes later. Or you need to keep in mind that with recruiting, a lot of it's remote, some of it's overseas. You could have someone, you may be applying at two o'clock in the morning. I may be working at two o'clock in the morning because I'm on a different time zone. So, you know, there are a lot of reasons. A lot of people don't think that just because they got a rejection immediately after they applied, that it had to have been a machine, it had to have been automated, it can't have been a recruiter. I'm like, no, it really could have been a recruiter. So I try and send my rejections as I go along. And so usually for me, solid review, resume reviews is a half an hour to an hour. I can usually knock out maybe three to 500 in a couple of hours, resume applications. And, you know, when you're working for a company that has a lot of name recognition, or it's a job that is either really an entry-level job or like an intern, or it's, you know, it's a job that you work for a big company that everybody wants to work at. You're talking thousands of applications for a job that opened on a Tuesday one week, and then the following Friday, you may have 1,500. It's a lot easier to go through those as they come through than to try and sit down and chunk out five hours to go through all of those 1,500 applications. Yeah, and batch it up. So we're talking about, one of my goals with this is also Mm -hmm. to, to sort of illuminate the idea of the ATS. And my analogy lately has been saying like soda, you know, there's like lots of brands of soda and lots, you know, so ATS is, there's a few big ones, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you, but you've worked with a few. I mean, are they all pretty similar? Are there like pretty big differences depending on the one they're using? From the recruiter side, they're all pretty much the same. I mean, most of the differences actually are going to be in the user interface. They're going to be in how I look at things and how I move things around. In terms of workflow and in terms of what I'm looking at and how I'm I'm doing it, it's almost all the same. And I've worked with over two dozen in my career. Um, I've worked with probably a dozen in the last 10 years. 
and I have an article on kind of why an organization would want to choose one applicant tracking system over another. So the big ones that give people the most heartache are like iSIMS and UltiPro and Workday and Taleo. Those are chosen for specific reasons. And normally, so especially with Workday and to lesser degree, not iSIMS, um, Taleo, they're part of a package. So Taleo is owned by Oracle, which has an ERP. And Workday has one of the top one or two HRIS systems on the face of the planet. So an HRIS system, human resources, information system, that's how organizations track their employees. So that includes everything like payroll, vacation benefits, promotions. And so that's tied to budget. And then an applicant tracking system is usually feeds into the HRIS. So a lot of companies will try and build one or the other. So maybe they have a fantastic HRIS and they'll try and build on a module for an applicant tracking system because, oh, that would be really easy, right? Well, I have a theory that's never been disproven. If you have a fantastic ATS and you try and build an HRIS, probably the HRIS is mediocre and vice versa. Yeah. So Workday and Taleo especially are used by companies because they get a discount for bundling up both of those. So if you have offerings like ADP also offers an applicant tracking system. So if you you buy that and you use that with their payroll, which also has that HRIS light, you get a big discount. So that's one reason why a lot of organizations might try, might bundle them as opposed to using different systems. But the other reason is for these for these multinational enterprise companies, those bigger systems are the ones that are optimized to fulfill international laws. So every country Mm. has its own HR employment laws Mm. and the larger systems actually are able to be configured by country. So you don't have to buy, you don't have to pay subscription fees for six different applicant tracking systems. If you're in the EU, you're in Australia, you're in the US, Canada, Africa, what have you. So that's the other reason why I think most companies that are larger choose these larger systems. They are multinational and they are much more complex on my side of it, but partitioned out by the country that I'm working in or the countries I'm working in. So, and those are generally, unfortunately, those are the applicant tracking systems that are the most unuser friendly. They're the ones that people have. I have to create a password. I have to create an account. I have to upload. And then I need to reparse my resume. Those are generally those older, larger enterprise systems. That's super insightful. Super, super insightful. And I think like why companies need them. It's not for the screening. Everyone thinks it's like to automate this. It's not. It's actually all this compliance stuff, the routing. You know, I'm sure if you're in the EU, there's a bunch of data privacy. You got to dispose of the data, you know, all sorts of complexity that for a company to hire at scale, they need, and that's really the main purpose they use these tools, yeah. not to pick the candidate. No, I've been recruiting long enough that I remember when I was using a spreadsheet and I had a role not that long ago in the last six, seven years where it was a smaller company and they hadn't implemented their applicant tracking system yet. I literally was working off, off of over a hundred concurrent roles off of a spreadsheet. And let me tell you, I've done that before. I hadn't done it for a long time. But after you use an applicant tracking system, it's a pain in the behind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We just implemented our own. I had built something in Airtable mm-hmm. with some pretty cool automations. And it was working pretty great. But we said, you know what? You know, we talk about these things. Let's implement one. And so I've been working with Leah closely on implementing. We picked Greenhouse. Okay. We'll give them a shout out. It's been, it's been all right. Yeah. I've, so I'm feeling a little bit of my loss of control with Airtable <laughs> that I really liked. But we're working through yeah. it. 
And greenhouses, I would say of the of the newer, more flexible ones, greenhouse is probably the leader. I personally am a fan of lever and I implemented lever when I had the choice when I was working at a startup. And the reason is it is by far the best candidate experience. You literally go hit apply, upload your resume and you're done. It doesn't matter. It's you're done. You don't even have to fill out anything. You don't have to fill out your name, nothing. It just does it all. And on the back end, it's very similar to greenhouse. It's got the flexibility, um, great customer service when I was working on it. You know, I had to ask them, can you add this workflow? Um, super easy out of the box to, to put together. I was the admin and I had to have my, my IT department help me just with that part of the integration. I did the rest of it myself. Yeah. So, so far we're doing it, you know, as a user yep. now, there is nothing yeah. that's automatic knockout. Yep. I can make questions required. Yep. There's some parts that I wish were automatic and I can't get it to be automatic. (laughs) So I might build my own integrations. I mean, if you want to talk shop a little bit about applicant tracking systems, they're the biggest complaint from every recruiting organization, recruiting leader, hiring leader, even business leader, is that reporting out of any applicant tracking system is generally not as granular as everyone would like. And so there are a couple of applications on the market, like Ashby is one I've heard about that actually integrate really nicely. There's some snowflake integrations that can help you with the reporting that mm-hmm. from the hiring side that everybody wants those those metrics and understands the reporting. Luckily, our volume's not high yeah. enough. Right <laughs> not now. yet. Not yet. All right. Well, that's ATSs. That's pretty deep. I think it's the deepest we've gone on the show, but you know, if we need to, if anyone has questions, let us know. We can come back to it. Uh, and there's lots of great content on Kristen's blog about it as well. So I think another area that we had on the list is job description. Sure. And I tell everyone, start with the job description. Yep. Right? We talked about the more technical aspects of a government contract, but job descriptions regardless, everybody makes them, everyone makes them slightly different, but the anatomy is generally the same. Mm-hmm. You know, a little bit about the company, yep. responsibilities, requirements, maybe nice to haves, yep. benefits and comp and stuff. And then disclaimers. The biggest area that I see candidates job seekers failing when they're applying to a job is they're looking only at the requirements and they're not looking mm-hmm. at the roles and responsibilities. The roles mm-hmm. and re- the role and responsibility is really going to give you the meat of what you're going to be doing and is it going to be relevant to what you bring to the table. So I'm not just looking at your hard functional experience in terms of you know, I'm a tech recruiter, so software languages or data analytics programs and, and education. I also want to see, is there some sort of a correlation with the job that we're actually hiring for? And I can't tell you the number of people that apply for jobs that don't read that section of it. So on my LinkedIn profile, I have a whole article that talks about, uh, it has an example of someone who was in a job search group that I was a part of that had applied to this job and, you know, felt that they were qualified and that they were declined. Should they apply again? And I read the job description and I said, well, do you have this? Well, no. I said, have you done a lot of this? Well, I did like 10% of my last job. I said, well, it was a financial analyst. I said, you have the financial background, but you don't have the analysis background. And they're looking for someone that has that analysis. It's not just looking at the numbers, crunching the numbers. It's actually forming an analytical insights based on those numbers. And so that was really key for that person to open their eyes up. You need to read all of the job description, not just the requirements. Yeah, and I think that this is something, I mean, I see it a ton as as we try to help people do this is everyone wants the company to take a chance on them. And it's just a fundamentally flawed premise. It's not a gamble worth taking. Like it, again, for the recruiter, a recruiter is oftentimes the biggest advocate as much as yep. everyone wants to 
pile on recruiters, but the hiring managers putting their job on the line yep. at the end of the day, right? The, the question is like, by hiring you, do you help me be successful, which in turn will get me promoted and help me feed my family versus if I hire you and you're not good, that's going to reflect poorly on me. Our team will fail. And it, it's just much more Darwinian, <laughs> you know, than I think people want to give it credit for. It's not personal. No. It's not, hey, yeah, you're probably great. I would probably hang out and maybe you do have potential. But if you do not demonstrate on this document that you're going to come in and knock it out of the park, you're just giving me very little reasons to sort of take a chance. I've written about this and I posit it like this. So a hiring manager has a problem that they're trying to solve and they're trying to find the resource that is best going to solve that problem. So part of the reason why hiring managers and organizations are loath to hire someone to take a chance on someone with very little experience, especially on more senior roles, is very simply because if they're under if they're under staff, that means that everyone else on the team is already working. So say you have five people on the team and one person leaves, that means everyone's taking on an additional 20% of, to, of someone else's job to achieve their goals, whatever they may be, whether it's, you know, whether it's output, product, whatever. And the hiring manager needs to find someone who can come in and, and fill that up. But the, the alternate to that is one of the biggest ways to fail at hiring someone that doesn't have all the skills is to bring them on board and not have the infrastructure to actually train them. I mean, there's no worse experience for bringing someone in and usually it's gonna be a new grad or an intern, Let's I just in general, but nothing is a worse experience for a new hire to bring them in and not have the capacity to train them to the things that they need to learn. So I always tell people that are, maybe they're looking for a career pivot or they're trying to up their game. I'm like, if you leave your current job, is your hiring manager going to hire someone that has little to no experience doing what you do, pay them to learn on the job and then expect everyone else on the team to pick up that slack for the six to 12 months it's gonna take them to learn the job? And are your teammates actually gonna stay or are they gonna create more gaps in what the workforce needs to be done. And then you're in this catch 22. It's a great way to think about it and kind of flip it around. I, I try to put it in practical terms. It's like, hey, when you go to buy something, you know, buy a car, right? And let's say you could pick any brand you want. Are you going to pick the one that's going to meet everything you need, car seats for your kids, your whole family, or the one that's like, hey, this one's this brand new thing. It's got great fuel efficiency, maybe, we're not sure, you know, and it's got this like new engine that does all these crazy things. It may or may not work. It's like, why would I do that? I'm yeah. going to go with the sure shot. Yeah. Like, why am I going to take a risk? Yeah. It's a tricky one because I get it. Now, I will say this, though. Well, I think right now we're going to get into a more, like, tight, restrictive job market. Sure. I don't Absolutely. see what's coming out of that. So I think companies are sort of less willing to take bets. And I think it puts more work on the candidate to prove that you're not a bet. But in the more of an up market, you know, if, you're, if you've got 10 recs for engineers, you might actually have a little more leeway than when you're like, hey, we've got one one ML engineer position. Right. You know, that's what I've seen. It's yeah. like, if I've got more positions, I can take a few more bets on people. Also, I have a lot of pressure to fill a lot of positions really fast. I mean, can you talk a little about sure. maybe some signals that people can look for? Most hiring managers want to have a mix of senior talent, mid-talent, and maybe some early career talent. Because if you have everybody that's at the top, then yeah, the machine is running really smoothly and everything's getting done, but there's less of a challenge. And also those people are going to want promotions, maybe in a management, maybe they're going to want to become, a, speaking just from a software engineer, a staff engineer, they're going to want to become, you know, they're going to want to move into another organization. So you don't want to have everybody 
functioning at their top because you need to give them room to grow as well. So you also need to develop, you want to have mid-level staff to kind of help support because there are going to be jobs in almost any position, any group that you need a little bit of the workhorse that they're still learning. And so you can have them do some of the more, I don't want to say lower level tasks, but maybe the more mundane tasks that they don't, they're learning. So that's going to give them the building blocks for learning in that particular position. And the same thing with bringing an early career. So you want to keep a nice mix. And so I'm going to say that the size of the company is often going to determine what that mix is going to be. A startup mm-hmm. is going to want senior talent when they're in growth mode. They're going to want senior talent who can come in, who can do the job, that can pick it up really quick and then get it running. And then after you get your product or your service up and running, then you're going to want to bring in some mid-level talent to help support it. And then you're going to want to bring in that entry-level talent that you can grow. So most organizations need to have that mix. But if you're in a really lean time, you need to get the most work out of what you have. And that's generally going to be more mid to senior level professionals, just as you mentioned, because of the economy. So do you think right now, I mean, so you've been recruiting for a bit, you've seen a few cycles, (laughs) like in a cycle like now, does it get harder for junior talent to land jobs or because companies are just going to go more towards like that less risky hire? Yes, I would say so. The exception that that I have seen is those mid-size late stage startups. So I've seen that late stage startups often have a little bit more flexibility and generally are not OCCP compliant. They generally have a little bit more flexibility for mid-level. It's the worst time to be an entry-level anything. And that's the unfortunate, unless it's one of the the major, you know, Fortune 50 companies that hires. Right, that have like the whole yeah. like graduate hiring yeah. program and yeah. like that. I, that. That's the bottom line. And I would say not, right now is a really not a great time to try and do a complete career pivot. It really, really isn't. And I think the economy, if it doesn't improve by January, then we're going to go into free fall for like another eight months. These cycles usually tend to last 10 to 18 months from, in my experience, I've been through three of them now as a recruiter. That's including the pandemic to be fair. So I think that things are going to even out. I've seen a little bit of a blip of more hiring in the last maybe three weeks as we get towards Q3, but by Q4, things are going to slow down again and organizations are going to really evaluate what they need for 2024. So when it comes to positioning your your resume relative to the JD, and let's say companies aren't really in the business of giving the benefit of the doubt, it, something I've looked at is like the, the language mm-hmm. as it relates to hard skills. We've talked about hard skills. Yep. I think you're in the hard skills camp like me. Yeah. And let's take something like data analysis. Sure. Do you have an opinion on whether people should hone in on like the actual technologies, right? So I could say, I know how to do business, uh, data visualization, or I could say, I know Tableau, I know Looker. Do you have any hints or clues for people on like how specific they should be with language when it comes to these functional hard skills? Yeah, you should. If it's on the job description, even if it's Microsoft Office or Google Suite, you should put on your resume. I will tell you, I recently revamped my own resume and I put every software program, every operating system every methodology that I know well enough to say that, yes, I can do this. I can walk onto the job. I can maybe refresh myself within two or three days and and be up and running. So that would be a different applicant tracking system. That would be a reporting system. Yeah. You want to include at least once for a software program. And then if there's methodology, so yes, I hire data analysts. So yes, I want to see Looker. I want to see Tableau. I want to see maybe ClickView. And then I also want to see the word visualization somewhere. And I also would probably want to see the words business insights on your resume at least once, preferably in the places where it's relevant 
on the jobs that you've done. And those are probably in the JD. It's not like this yeah. is some sort no, no. of like yeah. secret treasure hunt. They're, no. they're in the JD. Yeah. And, and I tell most people, unless you have a, you know, unless you've been in the field for a long, long time and you really legitimately have three separate distinct skill sets, I'm a big believer that if you have to tailor your resume, spend hours and hours and hours tailoring your resume, you're probably not the right person for the job. You should have those skills. You should need to maybe, maybe there's a program you haven't used for a couple of years and you took it off because it's not current. Well, there's a job that's requiring it. Well, you used it two years ago. Go ahead, bring it on, put it back on there, have your master document and then have your you know, that's where tailoring comes in. I, I wish we'd use the word tweaking instead of tailoring because to me it's tweaking. It's moving things around, maybe adding or subtracting things, maybe adding back in a project that you worked on that's more relevant to the job description, but you're not overhauling your resume every time you're applying to another job. If you're overhauling your resume every time, you're applying to the wrong jobs and you're probably not qualified. Yeah, I agree. That's the other thing about this. Well, maybe it's just like society as a whole. We, we give people very little grace on language these days. We're all just like looking to pick fights because I see it on LinkedIn, right? Someone says tailoring. That's what they mean. Maybe that's like this, but we just have to be so specific with language. But I think the same translate, I mean, that same overarching feeling that we've got around specificity with language does translate to the resume. You got to be that specific. People just, unfor- right now, we're not in a place where we give people de- benefit of the doubt by default. And a lot of that has to do with the rise of big data. Yeah. That's bottom line. A lot of that has to do with the rise of big data. And now the way businesses slice and dice every little piece of information and they're aggregating pieces of information and looking at the statistics around how often something is repeated or is successful, Mm -hmm. that's translated into job descriptions and resumes and what businesses are looking for, what employers are looking for. To speculate a little with the rise of a lot of the AI stuff and how easy that's becoming, because it's funny that Jade, like hiring has been associated with AI, even though it really wasn't there. But now AI is incredibly easy to bolt onto any technology. Do you think any of this stuff will legitimately make its way into the hiring process? So it's already making its way in a couple of places. So here's what is important to understand about AI. AI is going to be great for automating tasks. That's what AI is great at. But the reality is, I think the big one that everyone's waiting for is for AIs to scan resumes, to actually do the scanning. And in addition to the challenge I mentioned earlier, where there's no set resume standard, there's also the fact that AI is inherently biased. It's written by software engineers that, at least in the Western Hemisphere, are predominantly male and white or Asian. So we've already seen issues with that as far as AI. And here's the other issue. AI is built on you give it what the model is. You tell it what the optimum that you're looking for. And generally, if you're talking about job description, the optimum is going to be the employees that you already have. So it compares it against the employees you already have, or you've written your job description based on the people that you've already hired, and you're introducing even more more proximity bias. So AI itself still has far too much bias in my opinion, and that's just my opinion, and my discussion with someone who is a friend of mine who is the VP of an AI startup and talking to other people that know AI versus recruiting, I don't think we're there yet. I don't think that AI is going to be scanning resumes. However, are there places where it's going to be effective? We already use it for scheduling. We already use it for talent rediscovery, which is where it's either a utility that can be built into the applicant tracking system or it's an app you can load on that it will, when you open a job description, 
it will do a sourcing Boolean search for all of the people that are already in your database. If you have a robust applicant tracking system, bring them forward for your consideration. Basically, it's called sourcing. The app is actually, the AI is already pulling people that you have in the system and say, hey, you might want to look at these people. So it's really good for automating tasks. It'll be really great, I think, for automating, please let it automate reporting. That is the big thing for, I mean, I'm sure you know, as a business leader, metrics are huge. That would be the one thing I would love to see AI look used for, but it's good for automating. So repetitive tasks, I think is going to be really good for the thing that I I would like to see happen is I would like to see job descriptions update regularly as people get promoted. I'd like to see an integration with HR systems, job libraries, which are developed by human resources, by the way, they're not developed by recruiting. I would like to see as a career ladder is updated, I would like to see AI automatically update the job description library. Those are the things that I think would be really, really good for. AI is great for automating tasks and it's based on language. So if your language is crisp and clear or you can really use that, I think that that's where it's going to really roll in. Yeah. And look, we have these laws that actually make it illegal. Yeah. I mean, based on what you said, so I'm going to dig into that, but you know, you can't do the screening. You know, I think areas where it could be helpful is like synthesizing kind of writing summaries, Mm -hmm. some of this, like, it's not interpretive. So it's like, you know, do they have the five years of education experience? If you didn't have a Boolean, can the AI tell you yes or no? Does it meet these things? Which could be interesting. Well, we're going to end on this topic, which is a little less behind the scenes, more so from working with so many job seekers, but (laughs) crafting a job search roadmap. Yep. Right. And I've seen this a lot and sort of been a discovery of mine as we've been building Teal that people think about their job search in very like episodic ways. And it's like, once you pass one stage, then they think about the next. It's like, oh, I got to write my resume. Oh, I'm not getting interviews. So now I got to, oh, okay, I got my first interview. Now I got to actually practice interviewing. Oh, well, I got an an offer. Now I actually got to think about, and it's like, but it's really a whole process. And one does inform the other. You can't think about negotiating once you got your offer. You actually really want to think about it at the beginning and setting a plan and a strategy. But what are, what's some of your guidance for folks? So I absolutely think that I'm in the camp that you should try and keep your resume updated as you go through your career. It's not that difficult. Um, I, if, if at no other time in your career, if you do it at, when you have an annual or semi-annual review, if you update it, then you're good to go. I mean, that's bottom line as far as- That was my LinkedIn post today. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think it's really important to figure out and do an evaluation as you're going through your career. Like most people change jobs or maybe look for promotions every year and a half to two years. You know, you have to understand where you want to go before you can actually get there. So reevaluate what you're doing. But if you're in an active job search, you need to have an understanding of what skills you bring to the table and what jobs that they qualify you for. So for that, I recommend generally actually looking on indeed.com and pulling up, if you're not sure what job titles your skills might be relevant for, use your skills as the keyword search and see what job titles come up and then aggregate them by, you know, you'll see like these three job titles or job descriptions seem to be a good match for what I'm looking for. So do that. So basically kind of aggregate your skills and the job description or the job titles, and then you can start crafting. And then you want to research the organizations, the employers that might have a use for that. So, you know, you build one thing on top of the other. You want to start with your experience, your skill set, and then you want to look at, oh, well, what does that translate to in terms of job titles, job families? And then on top of that, you want to look at, well, okay, who hires those job titles and families? And then on top of that, you want to say, okay, well, 
how often do they hire that, which you should be able to see on LinkedIn by how many times someone changes careers and is backfilled. And then you're at that point where it's time for you to update your resume, maybe have some informational interviews with people that have worked in that job or in that role at specific companies, either currently or in the past. I recommend it say people that have left the job within the last six months to a year at a specific company. So you really, really want to build out that strategy. And it really is a strategy. It's not just your resume and it's not just interviewing. And then once you get that strategy, then you're ready to go and you're ready to apply and you're ready to do the, the interview practice. You're, you should do your due diligence to find out what you should be paid in your geographic area. And yes, you still do need to look at your geographic area. And I recommend either salary.com or payscale.com for those just because they have both corporate and self-reported. Don't use Glassdoor for salary comparisons at all. (laughs) They're so wildly erratic on who reports what that they're just not relevant. I would stick to organizations that what they do is they talk to both companies, employers, and individuals. You know, if you're in tech, Levels FYI is a good one. So just kind of get an idea of what you're looking for and, and have an idea and have your roadmap figured out. And if you kind of stick to it and, you know, be flexible enough to make changes, you should be on a better path than you would be if you don't. And I know Teal really helps with that because they really help you build out a roadmap. You not just your resume and the jobs you're applying for, but you can see a lot more of the entire process. And and that's what I would recommend anyone do when they're looking for a job. That's our goal. (laughs) So glad to give you a plug. Thanks, Kristen. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's a process. You got to work it. And yeah, and I think job searches are happening more often. The market's more volatile. The speed of business is increasing. So always be searching, I think Bonnie Dilber sort of says. Well, Kristen, this was amazing. How can folks follow along with all the great content you put out there? What's the best way for them to follow you? LinkedIn. Uh, LinkedIn LinkedIn.com forward slash IN forward slash KMFIFE. So mill initial M is in Michael. I have a whole section. I have over 145 articles that are predominantly geared for job seekers. I have a few in there for my fellow recruiters, but the majority of them are geared towards job seekers. Um, everything from, I have a, an intense article on OCCP. I've got salary negotiation. I've got tons of resume, phone screens, interviewing, take your pick. And I've been working on it for over 10 years. So I've got a significant amount of content. Well, this was awesome. If anyone has any questions, put them in the comments on Spotify, Apple, email us, yep. uh, you know, maybe... Kristen will join me for a part two. Sure, uh, your questions, I'm um, happy to. Amazing stuff. Well, Kristen, this was awesome. Thank you so, so much for joining. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. I hope you enjoyed listening to that episode as much as I enjoyed recording it. We are here to help job seekers. The point of this show is to give you the behind the scenes look at the hiring practices of companies and to debunk a lot of the myths and fear mongering that's out there. So if you like the show, please subscribe. Would love for you to write me on LinkedIn or comment on one of my posts if you'd like to be a guest. We're really looking for practitioners that are in the hiring role, whether it be a hiring manager or a recruiter. We wanna give people that inside view to what it looks like like to be hired and to understand the inside view of how companies operate. So please let me know. And if you're job searching, check out Teal, tealhq.com. We are here to help you land a job you love. All right, thanks. And we'll catch you on the next one.